Want to know why your interiors or images don't look like the ones you see on your favorite social media feeds? What if I said I could let you know and show you what's missing and how to transform your spaces with clarity and confidence? The truth is creating beautiful interiors is simple when you know the right strategies, but most people go about it the wrong way. This is why I created the Styling Masterclass. It's the only program that simplifies the art and science of styling, giving you the clarity and confidence to take your interiors to the next level and attract your dream customers or clients so you can make your creative dreams finally possible. This is for you if you're an interior designer or photographer, have an Airbnb, a homeware shop or e-commerce business, and you want your interiors to look like the ones you see in your favorite books, magazines or Instagram accounts. Come learn how to style using my signature method so you can elevate any interior and create compelling imagery, which is your most effective marketing tool if you're selling a product or service in the world of interiors. Any successful business owner knows that styling is your secret weapon to cut through the visual noise, stand out from the crowd and grow your business. Styling is something that you don't want to leave to chance. In today's world, images are everything. This is why leading interior designers and architects always use stylists to finesse their spaces for photography to make sure they've got incredible imagery that they can use for their socials and website. Come learn how to make styling not only an essential element, an easy way to create content for your socials and websites, but learn how it can propel the growth of your creative business. If you're serious about creating beautiful interiors and a business you love without struggling in obscurity, this is the program for you. I'm going to share my process and give insights that you're not going to get anywhere else because I've been working as a professional interior stylist for the past 15 years. The Styling Masterclass will give you that clarity and confidence you need to take action and connect with your dream customer or client so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time. So please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. Welcome to Imprint, a podcast about creating a home and life you love I'm Natalie Walton, an interior designer, stylist, and best-selling author focused on an holistic approach to homes. Each week, I'm sharing insights and interviews about the creative process to help you enhance both your interiors and well-being, as well as provide you with the tools and resources to make considered and sustainable choices with all that you create. Hello everyone, I hope you're all well. Welcome to another episode of Imprint. Today I'm excited to share an interview with Rebecca Morgan, who is a mother of seven, don't worry, we get into how she manages her time, and founder of Build Her Collective, an online educational program helping women build their dream home and lifestyle and develop for profit. Rebecca is a registered builder and developer who has always been passionate about all things building. 
She also has a podcast called Building with Build Her, which I love. I have been binge listening to it and it has got so many great tips and insights. So I highly encourage you to listen to that. And she has a book called Build Her, and it is all about empowering women to build and renovate their dream Australian home. In this interview, she talks about JVs, which are joint ventures, if you're not quite sure of that acronym. And more than that, she shares so much wisdom and insight onto how to manage your budget and prioritize what's most important to you in your home. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Welcome, Rebecca. I am so excited to talk to you. I have been binge listening to your podcast and love it so much. It is such a wealth of knowledge and also been going through your book, Build Her. And though I just honestly, it's one of these interviews where I feel like I could talk to you for about three hours, but <laughs> we're going to get down to the heart of, of, I guess, your story and what you do and some of the lessons that you've learned. So first of all, I would love to hear a little bit about your background, your story in terms of um, did you have parents that were renovators or builders? Did, what, like, what's your background in terms of what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, I, I was always around building in some sense, I guess. My parents weren't renovators. My dad did buy some houses and kind of do them, but that was way before I was around as such. And my mum, again, in her 20s, but... I didn't realize that till later. My dad has a carpet store, so he sells carpet and timber floorboards. So I guess I always had this understanding of business and, you know, we'd go in and out of houses and sometimes I'd go, I'd hang out with him and I'd go places and I'd be reading floor plans and I think from like year seven or 12 years old, we'd be in the shop on weekends and kind of selling or working or cleaning the floor. There's a specific way you need to sweep a floor, let me tell you. Um, you know, so you had this kind of mentorship of understanding what spaces felt like and what they looked like. And carpet's one of the, I guess carpet's one of the last things, and I'd never really thought of it like that, but it is one of those things where I got exposed to a lot of different ways that people lived. So ordinarily as kids, we grow up and we see our house or maybe a couple of other people's houses, and that's kind of it. I would see a lot of different floor plans and a lot of different houses and even rentals and things like that. And I really loved building and architecture and I love the kind of very physical nature of it. I mean, I actually enrolled in in architecture out of school, uh, engineering, robotics and computer science, but I've got no idea what I was thinking. You know, you'd like, they're like, pick something, you're like, that. <laughs> um, and so, so I got into architecture after my gap year when I realized that I wasn't going to be a robot maker. Um, <laughs> and after a year of architecture, I kind of had this realization that I liked it. Like it was the uni of Melbourne. It was great. It was, you know, but I switched over to the RMIT construction management program because I really liked the physical aspect of it. And I, I had a kind of maybe it dawned on me that it was possible that I wasn't going to be, you know, designing the high-end homes or the most beautiful buildings and, like, my, I like working quickly and I work, like working and seeing things come together and that this would be really suited to me because I could make that kind of imprint as I went 
Um, so I, t I, I moved over. I kept going with architecture actually for a few years and did construction management as well, which I don't advise too much. <laughs> and so did you sort of take that with a view, like I guess what, did you have a sense of where, where that would lead you or what that would, you know, what type of job you would have from that? Yeah, I mean, the, the role you get when you come out of that is commercial, right? So you're in commercial construction management, you're in commercial project management. And I came out at the end and I, I well, it wasn't the end. Before I ended, I did like a workplace and I was like, okay, well, I could do quantity. I did some tender, tender help, and I did some quantity surveying. So for those of you who don't know quantity surveying, it's um, pricing things. So working out how much it costs to build a building, very handy skill as it turns out understanding how much things cost and I went from quantity surveying to project management in a specific company and then I did a master's of entrepreneurship and innovation because I always like kind of business and making things and I think I always had a little side business happening on the side you know something would be rolling in the I don't know, like even as a um you know, year eight or nine, I had like the chocolate frogs that I'd sell out of my, <laughs> my lunchbox, uh, my locker at lunchtime. Um, so I did that kind of work and I got kind of client side and that was pretty good, but I, I decided I wanted to learn building side, like what it meant from a builder's point of view. And I was still commercial at that stage. Um, one of the projects I was working on as a project manager, the builder had gone bust. And we had him across a couple of projects. It was, you know, one of them was the loveliest couple. They were, um, well, actually two sisters, not a couple as such. And they were building this um, commercial building on Ligon Street. It was their family home. They took the site and they turned it into eight um, apartments over four levels. And I thought, oh, my God, what incredible um, women they are to be doing that but also how horrible that they got struck with a builder that went bankrupt. So I wanted to move into the builder's side project management, get a little bit more about that. The other project was actually 96 apartments in, um, in the city. So that was a big, big, messy project to work out of. Um, and from builder's side, I kind of went for a role at a place called Arrow. And they said, yeah, great, you can have a project manager's role. No idea what I was thinking, but I said to them, yeah, um, no, but I'll take the general manager's role. Um, I don't think it, they even had a general manager role going. I'm like, I will run that business and I'll increase it and I'll make it better than it is now and with my contacts, which actually was fairly limited, but I knew how to talk to people, um, I will turn this into a much better and a different business than it is now. And so that's what I did. So that's how I ended up as a kind of general manager um, in my late 20s, general manager of a commercial construction company. Wow. Well, there's two things that come to mind when you sort of shared the story. And the first is that I'm curious about, obviously, you're even, you know, a university, you were probably, I'm guessing, in a very male-dominated subject and, and stream and then even when then you went into this, this kind of line of business and how you overcame any kind of, I don't know, like were, were people kind of pushing back against you or didn't think you could do it or, or whatever, you know, what was your reception in that way? 
Do you know, I think this is a funny thing. Like I guess one of the things that I've learned kind of later, so I guess you would probably say that in that younger phase of my life, it was all about growing and getting as much as you can quickly and getting to the top of stuff. And, you know, I think this actually ties in with you because you like there's not a lot of room in there. Like it's pretty active, it's pretty moving, it's pretty um, gung-ho. It's like, what can I do to make this better? And um, I didn't get bias because I didn't, I know this sounds funny, I didn't actually appreciate it. Um, I didn't I didn't feel like it was relevant to me and I have seen it definitely in the workplace. I have seen other people treated poorly and I I know how hard it is for some people to get ahead but I guess my energy if you if you want to put it has was at that point probably more of a masculine energy and it was I was fine to walk in any room and talk to them and I think you know value of education and I I thank my parents for this it wasn't (laughs) I always laugh like I went to a school like a Turek ladies college hilarious Um, and I'm like, this wasn't the expected outcome of that. Um, but it did mean, and that education, I guess the private school education gave me a seat at any table. And so I didn't feel like I was inferior to men at that table. So I didn't, I don't know, it's maybe for me, it's like, I didn't hold that belief. I didn't experience that belief. Maybe I thought. Yeah, if it was that, it wasn't because I was female. Maybe it was because of, you know, lack of experience or um, being too brazen. Yeah. No, it actually, as you say that, it, it actually brings back memories of I, um, one of my first jobs as a journalist was to work in uh, financial news. So basically share markets, reporting on share markets. And I worked in this job and it was very old school men. And I kind of became in some ways, the general manager of that, this small business by the age of like 24. And, and yeah, I guess I just, I knew, I knew I had confidence in my ability and I knew that I could do it, even though I was always learning along the way. And so maybe there's some kind of parallels in that sense, but the, I guess the second part of the question that I wanted to ask you about is you obviously do have a lot of self-confidence. Do you think that's always been part of your personality or if you had to cultivate that? And and where do you think that is that nature nurture? No, well, I mean, you know, oddly enough, I'm an introvert and I don't like talking on camera and I don't like, um, <clears throat> no, I don't like it. Like I, I've come to appreciate it, but confident is not what I am. Um, I guess I always felt like if you work hard and you put you've got the ability because you work hard then that gives you the confidence to achieve right and so i guess i've always been confident in my ability to produce an outcome but confident in myself not at all no yeah that's an interesting Um, distinction i think that's kind of common women isn't it yeah it's like i can tell you this story and i can look like this but how i feel about that or how I feel about myself and all those things is probably a different a different thing. So um, confident in ability, I would say yes, and I would say that opened doors for sure. 
Because when I think about you saying, you know, you were managing this project that was 96 apartments or however many, I mean, that's, you know, it sounds like a massive project. And where do you even begin? Was that, did you have like protocols that you were following or like a roadmap that you were following? And so that's how you were able to do those things? Yeah, I had great mentors. Um, And I had mentors, you know, like, there was a guy called Luciano and he was incredible. And I, I really thrived off his way of working, which was getting early, work really hard, streamline the process. Um, like hilariously wouldn't use a computer. So you just write the letter, but the girl, uh, the girls, um, the, the, um, admin team <laughs> would then turn them into professional letters and send them out. So you could get a large volume of work if you thought strategically out, but then You'd run really hard at the at the start of the day, and you'd you'd pace out towards the end, and you'd be like, "No, I'm done. Like I can, I can have the freedom and flexibility in my role because I work really hard." So I worked under him. When and he taught me a lot, and you know, I managed that project with him as well, and some of the others, especially when that builder went bankrupt. It was really hard. I found that so hard, and. The stories, like there's one plaster. So firstly, there's a fair amount of building thugs out there and I didn't realise that that was actually prevalent and some of the issues that you could get with unions and things like that and some of the bullying tactics that would be out there and I really experienced that and there was nothing I could do about it. But there was nothing also I could do about it for the plasterer, that poor plasterer that had done this job and this job was probably outside of his capabilities and he delivered all the stuff to site and he was going to lose his house because the builder had gone bankrupt because they didn't run their business properly. And the builder was fine because he had money, you know, put aside and things were in his wife's name and he would just open up another building company. But this poor plasterer and there was a whole list of them and they'd ring me and they'd be begging for money and begging me to help them and there was nothing I could do. It wasn't my money, it was the client's money. And the work wasn't finished on site, so we couldn't pay. And if we could pay, we would only be able to pay the builder, you know. like, And so that really hurt. Um, I know I actually met my, my now partner, or you'd call him a husband, we, we never bothered to get married, like 10 years in, 12 years in. Um, I met him and, and I needed a go plasterer. I needed a plasterer on a house I was renovating. Um, that I bought with my sister and I'd kind of spoken to him on the phone and when he drove into the backyard, I was sitting in the backyard crying. Now I, I was so upset because there was nothing I could do to help these people and emotionally that's not a game I can play. Um, and I guess, you know, like it looks like outwardly confident and in the meetings you'd be confident but inside you're like, well, why this isn't fair and it doesn't feel like, you know, when you grow up and you're taught this is the way we work and this is what will happen, it's like someone should step in and stop this because it's not fair and it's not right. Yeah, yeah. So when did you um, then decide to sort of step away from working within a corporation to, to doing your own thing? Yeah, so when I worked with the builder, I kind of grew that business over a period of a year and a half. 
and it was going really well. So it was at the time of the BER funding, so there was a lot of school rollouts and we had like lots of school packages and DHS work and doing some high-rise stuff. Um, and that was really fun, but it was really long hours. And my partner um, had two kids, so he had a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. And they were going through a particularly rough time and they, they needed to live with us at that point in time. And my, my boss said to me, well, what you need is a house husband and you can't be there. And I'm like, oh, well, hang on. Yes, I can. That's way more important than anything I'm doing work-wise. And if it doesn't fit in with having a family, then it doesn't work for me at all and in fact I, I wasn't pregnant then and wasn't for a year later but I did want to have a family and I wanted a job and a role where the family and that value is a priority over you know what work needs. And so then you so I guess how did you formulate what it was going to be and yeah yeah <laughs> well my plan at the time was um my plan at the time was to leave the door open. So I said, I'm going to take some time off for family reasons. And I started another business um, and I left on really good terms. I didn't actually confront him on that opinion, um, but I didn't accept it either, if that makes sense. So I left and I, I started a fundraising business um, and then we were doing building projects on the side. So my partner and I would build houses and do some work for other people on the side and I'd do a fundraising business. That fundraising business, when the building business then picked up and I had a baby or two, I don't know how many at that point. <laughs> We've had a few. Um, the building business picked up and I sold the fundraising business to a UK company actually um, and started, well, and with the intent to go into building full time, and actually Build Her Collective came out of that because it only took me about a month. I hadn't even settled on that company. I think I sold it in December and I had a three-month workout clause um, where I taught them the systems and processes so they could continue to run that business. And a few people said, oh, great. So you'll do the books for your husband who's a builder then? And I was like, oh. You mean I'm not going to be, do you know what I mean? Like I'd come from this, like I can sit at the table and I'm general manager of a construction company to being, oh, your, your husband's the builder and he's got a business and you support him. And I was like, I don't like that. And actually that role's fantastic. I don't have an issue with anyone else doing that. But for me, I'm like, but I'm the driver, you know, like I drive this business too and we, we do this. And so I felt like working with John in a business and just having that be it would be a mistake for me. It would mean that we were always tied together and I would always feel like um, I didn't have anything of my own. So we started Build Her Collective because I was thinking, well, how do I help people? And we had all these women coming to us and they're like, well, I need help and I've had this issue with the builder or I've had this issue with um, the architect, lots of, you know, or with a designer. And you're like, well, you know, you can see the issues, but the issues weren't 
always on the builder or the designer's side. A lot of times the issues were on the client side. They just didn't realize what they were doing. But once they'd lost trust, there was almost no way to get it back. And it was a really hard and tedious building project. And at that point, you don't want to jump in and help because you're just jumping into someone else's kind of mess or fight. I'm like, but if people know the right way to do this and they can understand how to do it, they can have this amazing building experience and they can get better outcomes and the design team's happy and the, the build team's happy and the, the person's living in an amazing home and their expectations are right. Um, so then we started Build Her to help help that process. So... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I was just thinking as you were saying that, like, I can't think of another industry where you hear as many horror stories as what you hear from the kind of the renovating, building your home kind of process. Like, And like you say, sometimes it's the relationship with the architect or the relationship with the builder or the trade or whatever, you know what I mean? Like people not coming through on saying what they're going to do or, you know, having defects in in the product or the the work or whatever it is like you just I mean everyone's got a story and <laughs> and um and so I guess what what were some of the big lessons that you have learned in your journey and and what, I guess what is the right approach can you kind of give us a bit of an outline on like what are some of the common issues that people come against and what are you know, solutions for want of a better word to, you know, whether it's invested in the process or however you go about it, what do you see as that being the right way to go? It's really complex. I mean, I don't think there's another industry which is so varied and complex. Um, I think I did a, a little count on one of my projects and it took 107 people to build this specific house. And so that's any number of trades and contents and it's the first time this house has ever been built and it's the first time this set of plans has ever been tested and it's the first time, well, it wasn't the first time us as a builder, but that set of trades, like a lot of them I'd worked with before, some of them I hadn't. Um, and so every building process is basically this. You've got a really complex set of things going together that aren't necessarily made to fit together. It's not kind of Meccano and it's not like, you know, when you, when you buy a car, a car's complex, but they've refined that process in a factory and they've put everything together, things still break and they've got a process for that. But a house is complex like that. You've got, and you overlay then all the different personalities that have to come together to do it and all the different materials and how they connect and what different products and all the different people that supply those things. And then you overlay the, the client's expectations, which are largely in their head and they don't have a lot of um, experience. They may or may not know how to communicate that properly with their design team. Often it's the first time that they're doing it and they don't understand what the budget is, but they do understand that they're scared of blowing their budget. And this is, in most people's times, the most amount of money they will ever spend in their entire life and they don't know what they're going to get at the end. I mean, you think you go to a designer and you go, hi, Natalie, can you please um, design me something? And I don't know what that's going to cost and you can't tell me what it's going to cost because you don't know what's in my head yet and you haven't put it on paper. And even when you've put it on paper, you can get quotes that vary by 50%. And so each one of those trades, so I guess 
and understanding of the complexity of what you're asking for is good. And if you have that understanding, then you've got a much better respect for the building and what needs to happen from everyone's viewpoint. And once you understand all of that, you can help to bring it together much better and then overlay that with the market conditions, right? So it's no secret. Now we're in a really tricky market. But in fairness, every market until now has been tricky in my mind. It's like every time I've built, there's been something. It's been a Royal Commission or it's been, you know, GSC or there's been um, lending crunch or there's been an election or there's been COVID or there's been, no, we're out of COVID, no, we're back in COVID. Like there's, there's all these different conditions that then you're expected to react to. So I think that's why issues happen and because people really want this thing that they've been dreaming about and thinking about since they were kids normally. You know, you have this idea in your head about what your dream home looks like and that's what you're trying to create and you've saved all your life savings and you've put it into this one project and then you don't feel like you're in control of that outcome. Like it doesn't really give you a tip or a trick, but I guess knowledge is the outcome to that. Knowledge is the way that you win. And by understanding how things come together and who to use for what scenario and what they cost, if you're in control of it, then you can influence how it comes together. For example, if you've got a budget renovation, you may not have the, you know, and you're doing a, a simple extension, you might not have the budget to use a high-end architect or it might not be appropriate. You might not be able to get a builder in to do that. Or right now, we're looking at the building market and builders are afraid of being burnt if prices go up further. They don't understand the normal processes that apply to, to trades and process and lead times and COVID, it's all gone skewed. Like normally, it'll take one thing, like trusses, which are, if people don't know, they're kind of, like a webbed form of um, a beam that'll go in your roof. So it'll hold up your roof or your first floor. And trusses normally have a 10-day lead time. Right now we're out to 26 weeks. So as a builder, how do I react to that? And the cost of timber has gone up. So getting a fixed price contract with a builder is really tricky right now. But I tell you what, lots of builders are feeling the same and they want to do the work. They just don't want to lock into a fixed price builder. So there's other ways you can manage it if you understand the process. You can work with a builder and do a cost plus build. If you've got, say, a renovation or if it's over a million dollars, then that's, there's an appropriate type of con contract for that. Or you can try managing things in a blended builder way or you can start sourcing some materials and taking some of the guesswork out of that. And some of these things that you can do can help to control the process and bring the price down. And I guess it's in understanding the, the beginning to the end that you then get to choose the pathway that best fits for you. And one of the biggest issues I see is someone goes, oh, my, my mother's brother, or that'd be your uncle, your mother's neighbor, for example, has said, use this builder, they're perfect. They just did my house, I had a great experience. Well. They don't know what you're like. They don't know what your expectations are. So you're kind of doing this weird word of mouth thing without understanding what people's frameworks are and everyone's got an opinion. 
So who do you trust and who do you listen to? Because there's so many, um, you know, there's so many people that will send you down a different path and there's always that guy that says that they can do it better, you know. Oh, I built it. It was much cheaper than that, you know. So I think that can be disheartening. One of the, the big things I think people struggle with is that when they've sort of perhaps put out the tender and they get very different prices for a build. And I think a lot of people have a natural inclination to kind of go for the cheaper one, you know, the cheaper quote, because you sort of think, wow, you know, like that, that this other quote is 250,000 more or whatever, you know, whatever the price is. Um, but, you know, sometimes that can be a false saving. What, um, you know, when people are looking at quotes from builders, what do you think that they should be factoring in? Well, you've done tender reviews, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and on a tender review, you know that all things are equal. Yeah. And that's your experience. Like you're experienced at it. You can run across things and you can say, okay, well, this builder's included this and this one hasn't included that. So they're really complex and they don't come in the same format. And so people will get three prices in. And there might be, say, $100,000 spread. There could be more. There could be $500,000 spread. And they don't know what they're looking at because they don't know if they're comparing apples with apples. And it's not, and often they've got this opinion. Have you heard, like, where people go, oh, that guy was, you know, he was trying to rip me off. And you're like, I don't know that he was. Like, I say he, I don't know that they were. I think... People price things differently and the system and solution you get from each person is different. So if you go out to tender with exactly the same documents, you will still get a set of tenders back that don't match and that you've got to interrogate to work out who's higher, who's lower, and what service you're going to get there. Um, and I think it's only in that interrogation and really understanding what you're looking for and how to pick it out. Um, that you can actually work out who is, in fact, actually the better option. Yeah. And then I guess another thing when it comes to budget that people struggle with is, you know, this idea of going over budget, which is often that they perhaps haven't fully scoped their project or their design and they're starting to add things in or they haven't really mentioned, oh, but I wanted these kind of tiles or, you know, because they're making those choices along the way perhaps rather than, having specified them at the start. And then suddenly it starts to get more and more, you know, like, oh no, but I wanted the timber windows or I wanted the, <laughs> you know, the fly screens on the windows or what, whatever it is. And it starts to creep up and up and up. Are there some things that you see that are more worthwhile kind of prioritizing in your budget than other things? Yeah, for sure. I think those things come along the way and that's where not understanding what's in people's head gets tricky because they may never have considered whether they wanted fly screens, but when you ask them, they definitely did want fly screens because that's reasonable and why would anyone not have fly screens? And so then that becomes an assumed neglect. But the reality is you you are making this up on you, on the way. My top tip would be Work on the areas. If you've got a finite budget, really the home feels, or the centre of the home is the kitchen, right? So the kitchen, the family, the living, the dining, that kind of area, and even actually the outdoor space, they are going to have more impact into the way you live 
and present to family and friends and having guests over and working through that. It's all the stuff you can touch and feel, the bench tops and the handles and things you're using and and working within them that are going to have a better impact on your life. So prioritize the things that impact the way you live. Um, but that scope creep, like this was, I had a really expensive day yesterday. I had an architect's meeting. It was really fun. Um, and I love design concepts and the architects nailed it and it's going to be great. But as I'm driving there, I'm like, ooh, really like some checkerboard terrazzo tiles. And I really love the steel windows I've got on my house. Yeah, definitely steel windows. I keep going, I don't, yeah, I really want a sauna. So I need a, I need a space for a sauna. And I'm like, I'm having a really expensive day. Like she's put a fireplace in there and I'm like, I've never seen a round fireplace like that. Are you sure there's one with the system? She's like, yeah, that's fine. We can just import that. Like we've got them, but they're, they're European. I'm like, geez, I'm having an expensive day. Um, <laughs> and it's fine because I understand the cost and the budget implications for all of these things. However, if you're a client and you don't know what you're asking for and you don't know that that terrazzo tile you just asked for is probably about double the normal timber wood, you know, the timber flooring that you might have. Or the steel windows, you know, across the project might be 200K more, right? And this is what I mean. I'm having an expensive day. Like I know what they're worth and I'm like, I like them. I would like to have them. But if you're not asking those questions, you don't know what you're asking the designer to design. Um, and you've said specifically this, and it's their job to bring you in budget, but it's also your job to understand what you're asking for. And so I think you need a healthy respect there. And it's fine. Like for me, I can make those value decisions um, and work out what's going to impact which area and how that'll roll through. But understanding that from the get-go would be really, really advantageous. So do you, when you work with your projects, do you set um, a budget that like the overall budget, this is what I'm going to spend. And then if you do start to make changes you know like even in that design concept stage and think actually i do want to have those steel doors or windows whatever um do you start to think well i either need to sell this for more money or i need to um i need to let go of some other idea like where where do you start kind of balancing the scales there yeah so in that one like i'm in concept phase so you know i'll probably change my mind 15 times before i get to actually build it and that's okay because I'm in control and <laughs> that's my process through this. Um, I do, so what I do is I run a budget and I'll balance different things. So the house I'm in at the moment has steel windows and I love the steel windows, but it has recycled brick walls um, and a terrazzo floor. Everything else is pretty simple, right? It's got nice joinery in it, but that's it. Everything else is pretty simple and it's a pretty refined floor space. And so I'm making those considerations because I'm like, actually, I've built on a smaller block. I can afford to build a higher quality and finish. And I get savings by the way I manage things as well. Um, and, you know, we landscaped our own gardens. We used a landscape architect to do gorgeous plans, but we did all the work ourselves. So that in itself can save 150 grand. Like because I I can do that. 
you need to kind of run them through in your scenarios and understand from a budgeting point of view, yeah, if you're talking about something like that, it's going to mean this amount per square metre. At this point in a project, I can't tell you what it's going to cost specifically. I can tell you what I think is a reasonable allowance per square metre for a reasonable build of this nature. And then as I start to work it through, I might go, okay, but that was a reasonable allowance if I had aluminium windows. Now I need to extra over these things that I've put in and work out, am I willing to pay for that? Do I think I'll get a return on it or not? Yeah. Okay. So when you are, cause I know that you like you do these renovations and these builds um, and you've sold quite a few projects if, if I'm correct. Um, what are you looking for when you start to look for a house? What are some of the things that you're looking for in a plot of land or a house itself? What, you know, um, yeah, what's on your kind of wish list usually? I mean, I'm sure you've got some things that you've kind of learned over the years, like this is really good. Yeah, so basically you're looking at value add. Where can I add value? So you might take something that someone else doesn't see or you might change the use of something. So the house I'm in now, the one with the steel windows, it's a small side out the back, but it's got a driveway to it. It was a huge block and I was able to separate it in half. So you had two separate houses with no shared driveways, no um, nothing combined. They kind of back to back if, if that's the easiest way because one of them had a laneway that led to a different street. And that was a different use than, say, other people who are looking at that site had in mind. And so I was able to use that kind of creative thinking to leverage the value in the house um, and turn it from what it was into something else entirely so that that's where the kind of increase in value comes from there. Another one, um, you know, the Rathmines project, which I just did as a JV. Now, this was a site I bought that had plans and permits for two very large, very, very large townhouses. But they were very ill-conceived and ill-considered. You know, one of them had this really long room. It was like three metres by seven metres long. And I'm like, how do you even use that? Like at the interest, I'm like, I don't know how I'd, like what would I do in terms of furniture to put in there? And so the value of the end product was always going to be capped. But what we did is we went, okay, well, they've approved two townhouses and they've approved a, a tidal realignment or two, a subdivision down the middle. So what if we put two 400 square metre houses on here? Now, a house has a higher value than a, than a townhouse. So we were able to redesign it and do two more, um, I guess, two well-considered floor plans of houses. They weren't huge houses, but they were well-considered. They gave people everything they needed. Um, and they were two distinctly separate houses, and that allowed us to unlock the profit in that project. Whereas if we had done those two townhouses, that site wasn't worth anything to us. We couldn't even buy it and make a profit. And so that that tip to me is seeing the value. Yeah. And are you always, um, wait, like when you buy a new house or sort of start on a new process or a project, um, are you always thinking that ultimately you will end up selling that within a certain period of time? I mean, I guess it sounds like you probably will in reality, even if you sometimes well, think that you won't. Maybe. 
Maybe, but no, I've bought lots of forever houses. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering if you then approach it differently, you know, because there's obviously there's that whole sort of viewpoint that if you're, you know, if you're building a place with a view to sell that, you know, you maybe don't, you know, put marble in there, that you put something that's more, exp- uh, you know, less expensive, for instance, or whatever it is that, you know, there's that like you sort of not cut corners with what you spend, but you might not put the best quality fittings or finishings. What's, what's your viewpoint on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm doing every house, my house and other people's houses with the same mindset. I don't spend money unnecessarily, if that makes sense. To me, I love, so I do family homes and look, I am in a kind of a market which has good buoyancy in terms of like they're higher end homes. So they're selling between the 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 two eight would probably be the lowest to three, three and a half maybe is kind of my my pocket at the moment. And I'll do renovations, I'll do lots of different things. Like I actually like working on different projects and different things. But for me, if I'm selecting a hero piece of marble for the kitchen, that is worth the money because I am going to get that back in spades. But say the tapware, I'm not going to use a bespoke tap because tapware, for good quality fittings, I can use tapware that sits at maybe 150 all the way up to 500. I'm not going to use something that's at 500 because I don't see the value in that and no one's going to pay me for that extra unless there's something that it's required for my design intent or outcome. And so I kind of go through the process like this and I balance as I go. Anything I can touch and feel, like I'm very particular. I will not put um, hollow core doors in, for example. But why? Because people will hold that hand door handle and they will open that door and it needs to feel like it's got weight. It needs to feel like it's got substance. I'm selling a family home and I know what my end user is. Now, if I am selling a townhouse in an outer suburb and it doesn't have that same uplift, then I need to readjust. That Then in that market, I can't afford to put stone in. I need to put, and we do a lot of townhouse design. So we do um, a lot of design for developers. And so we're making those compromises all the time. You know, we might be putting a beautiful looking $20 tile, which we do all the time, you know, like as a splashback because it looks lovely and it looks interesting. It adds texture. So they're well considered in terms of what they are and where they're placed, but they don't need to be outrageously expensive. You know, even in stone, like the range of stone, uh, you'd know this is kind of goes from 160 a square metre all the way up to like $2,000, $1,500 a square metre. Well, I'm not probably ever going to use a stone that's more than around $250 a square metre because I personally don't see the value in that unless it's got a hero in the home and it speaks to a certain it speaks in a certain way that I need and can't have another material used in the same way. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, completely. And I'm completely with you on the hollow core doors as well. <laughs> I'm so with you on that one. Um, but um, so I'm curious then, because you, like you say, you know, you've worked on various projects and you do have a lot of children. Um, if I'm correct, you've got seven. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So... 
I mean, which I'm going to ask you a whole other question about that. But in terms of when it comes to renovating, are you always living offsite? And, no. and how <laughs> on earth fun. do you do that? You know, like, do you actually sort of have an intention that, look, we're going to enjoy this home for a certain period of time? Because otherwise it would feel like you're always living on a building site or are you completely fine with that and your kids are completely fine with that? Do you know, like, I love the building process um, and I don't mind kind of some quasi-camping for small amounts of time. Like, we've been in this house for two years now, I think, almost two years, which is not bad. The one before that we were in for four years. So there comes a point where you can't just turn over your home all the time. It's not um, feasible and there's no... There's no tax advantage. If you buy something to sell it again, there's no tax advantage to that. So you can't just roll through your house all the time. You need to be really intentional. So we move for different reasons, not necessarily just to renovate our our home. But that first, I guess the first step in developing is you've got to get to a point where often people, and I did too, started with my own home. You know, I couldn't afford to go out and buy something else and have my my home. Like I needed to use the equity that I had in the house that I was living in. Um, And so that process meant that I needed to take the kids on the journey. So we probably did that a couple of times and we lived in a couple of houses. I remember we moved, um, so that first house we lived in probably for about, I don't know, six six years like. And I always thought that was going to be our home. I don't know, I just thought it was going to be our home. You know when you have that in your head, it's just like it feels like home. And then you're like, hang on. I can't ever afford to do what I want to do if this is my home. Is it is a home where I make it with my family or is a home a, a physical building? And for me it was what I made with my family. So I remember the point in time where I made the decision that kid, uh, Emily was in the, <laughs> I mix up all the kids' names all the time, um, Emily was in the pram um, and we were walking down the road and it was a Sunday morning and I was on Thompson Street and, you know, I thought to my, like, John and I were having a conversation. We're like, okay, so we're going to sell the house, right? Yeah. Okay. You know, we're selling the house. Like, we're firstly, we're going to have to finish the house. Um, <laughs> secondly, we'll then have to put it on the market. Um, and so our plan there was to split out into two houses. But as it turned out, we basically spent the same amount as we sold that finished house for to buy an unrenovated house weren't we great? And we wanted two timber weatherboard houses and we bought a brick one, but we both had the same vision on that house. Um, And realizing that vision, you know, two projects later meant that we could work on a house that wasn't the house we were living in. But it's a process because you've got to build up the equity and the cash flow and the funding, and you've got to really turn it into a business to be able to afford to not renovate and move from the house that you're in. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, completely. And so can you just clarify then, um, so do you, with these projects, so are you doing those with your partner as your own business and how much of that, I guess, in some ways, how much time do you invest in that? Because as you said, you know, you were, you're really interested in, in about, you know, doing this kind of career so that you can have the life that you want. So you're not just having to get a house husband, as, as you mentioned earlier on. So how much time does that take up for you? And then the Build Her Collective, is that just 
a little like and I mean not to diminish it diminishes it but, but like is that <laughs> is that like a more of a side project or are they both you know equally hungry beasts or um I'm just kind of trying to get a sense of how you make this happen and work for you to have these two separate businesses with um with uh, you know seven children and, and and all of that stuff well I didn't have all those children when I started <laughs> Um, I keep on growing. My youngest just turned two the other day. So that was a sad moment when I didn't have a one-year-old anymore. I know most people are like, yay. I was like, oh. (laughs) Um, I guess for me it's about flexibility. So it's not necessarily that I don't work really long hours or I don't work hard. It's just that I'm I'm able to do every pickup and every drop-off. I'm able to, I personally am an early person. So I get up at five o'clock and I do some work or I go for a walk maybe at four and I'll do that kind of work for a couple of hours in the morning. Then I come do the kids from seven till nine and then I'll come back to work and I'll do some more. But I work probably, the ideal is like three days a week um, with Build Her, but it all works in itself. So some of the projects are with John. Some of the JVs are not with John. Some of them he's building. Some of them we're building together. And I guess it's that flexibility and freedom that I find so important. It's like I don't want to always have the same life and the same lifestyle. I like the fact that it can be what we design it to be. So, for example, we haven't taken on another project. Um, We've got a break in our building schedule. So we're going overseas for six months with the four youngest kids. and we're going to travel around Canada and the States. And I can still work on Build Her while I'm over there. That's fine. We've shown that in the pandemic. But we can't physically build a building while I'm over there. I do have a JV, a couple of JVs going. But um, we won't be physically building. And it's kind of a conscious decision to take that break, to spend that time with the kids and to kind of explore the world after a couple of years of being, like, I don't know, locked down. And do you think it's because you've reached your, you've grown your business to this particular point where you can do that as well? Um, yeah, I think I like, I put a lot of time in thinking strategically and I put a lot of time in mapping and planning. And, um, if you've got that GPS saying, you know, you can't, you can't go where you're not planning. If you, if you put the destination in, then even if you don't quite end up there, you've got a pretty good direction on where you're headed. Lots of people just kind of flow through and they just work and they'll, they'll put something off this year because it seems hard and they're busy. And we don't do that. We kind of strategically map out, you know, we know what the projects are when we've got, when we come back, um, we've bought two projects, one we've settled on, one we're going to settle on. We know what that looks like into the future. And if we change it, that's cool. Um, but we've always got that pathway and we're always doing the work to redefine and re, re-leverage that. I mean, right now the work that I'm doing is trying to get prepared so I'm only working like three hours a day. Like that's my goal. So I'm doing the work on the business now to get that system up so I can kind of work in a way that's more strategic and leverages my time and outcome much better so I can spend the time with the kids when they're little because. My job in building and my job in built her is replaceable, but my job in their life is not. 
Before I get on to the, the sort of the final rapid fire questions, I've just got one more question for you, which is is about Build Her. So what what is I guess your intention for for that you know that collective, and what type of person does it suit you know to to sort of become part of the Build Her collective? Um. So Build Her started off helping women who are, you know, building their homes and renovating for profit and now it's helping women that are looking to design a lifestyle around building for profit. I guess it it helps both. It helps women doing their own home and I guess we've got another group now which is women like me that have kind of taken, um, some of them are taking that plunge with their family home and some of them are doing other things but what they're trying to do is live a life where they've designed the outcome and the question that we we often ask there is, well, what would have, you know, like I'm not that far into this journey, you know. Emily's only nine, so she was in a pram when I decided, you know, John and I, not I, John and I decided to go through this process and you can make rapid progress if you start and that kind of one or two years doesn't make any difference. It's kind of you can't get that far, but in five years you can get really far. And so what would it mean for you if you had a board or started five years ago, that kind of process of designing it and working towards, you know, for me, the vehicle's renovating for profit or building for profit, other people, it might be shares or process, whatever else. What would it mean if you started on that journey and really thought about it earlier? Yeah. And you say that um, people, you've got a 20 minute um, call that people can take if they're considering doing your course. Is that right? Or your program? Yeah, yeah. So we've got a, a twenty-minute um, call that people can can jump on and have a chat with us about what they're thinking and what they want to do renovation-wise, with it's their own home or or otherwise. Even if they just want to talk through a situation they're having with a builder or a problem, like we're more than happy for that. We've got a whole heap of online resources as well, like downloadables, templates. There's a seven-dollar feasibility. There's um, you know, lots, there's lots and lots of stuff because we really do try and help people leverage in that way. Okay. Before you go, I've just got um, a bunch of quick rapid fire questions and I'm really curious to hear your, uh, your answers. So the first one is which five words best describe you? It's really hard. (laughs) That's three words. Um, uh, Enthusiastic, creative, um, and I guess really driven. That's I mean, that's three. three. That's okay. More? That's all right. I'll take I'll, I'll take three. I should have looked at those questions. No, no. I was like, no, it's all right. I'll be able to do it. I'm like, <laughs> that's okay. No, 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 that's good. I think we've got a good sense of your personality anyway from all the passion that you've put through today. Um, what's the best life or career lesson you've learned? Uh, don't accept other people's. Um, don't accept other people's valuations of what you can and can't do. It's up to you to define how you want to live your life or your career and make that happen. Just because they've pegged you one way doesn't mean that you need to be that way at all. Very, very true. What's your proudest career achievement? Probably starting Build Her. Um, 
I get kind of really excited when I go to the the weekend intensives and I see women helping each other and women kind of changing their lifestyles and living in the way that they've told me that they want to. And and it's really all about them. At some of those times, you know, when you, especially as a designer, you kind of look at the designs that they've created and they've kind of done these houses and I'm like, geez, that's good. Wish I had done that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. And when, yeah, because people are, put their personality into the spaces and what's important to them. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's really beautiful. What's been your best decision? I think the best decision was to leave that, that big role, that general manager role. It's kind of like, it was the hardest decision too, because I was well paid and, you know, I had that security of income and of the way life would roll out and it was hard to step away from that and go, okay, well now I, I really don't have a lot of income and I've stepped away from the thing that I've been telling everyone I want to do and working towards and running at really. Um, so that was my best decision, but probably my scariest decision. Yeah. Who inspires you? Oh, like everyone. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I take inspiration from like so many people. There's I don't know that I've ever been good at giving someone a name. Does that make sense? Or saying this one person inspires me. I'm inspired by basically everyone around me and what they're able to do and how they're able to do it. And I guess, you know, the five words that best describe you, it's not how it describes me, but it's the five thing feelings that I want to have with in a house is inspired because I want to see what's happening. I know I'm very bad at rapid fire. Um, I've gone off on a tangent on you again, but I guess, um, inspiration comes from everywhere. So it might be someone who's a mother and they're looking, you know, you notice them speaking really beautifully to their child and you're out and I'm like, Oh, I need to do that. Or it might be, you know, you notice the way someone looks and that someone partnership they've got with their partner, or it might be a project that someone does, um, and a way they run their business. And I guess I'm taking inspiration and input from all these different places all the time. And I think that's super exciting. Yeah. What are you passionate about? Building people up, enabling people to do whatever they want to do and have the courage to do that. Yeah. Beautiful. What dream do you still want to fulfill? Um, <laughs> so cheeky. I'm like, I want another baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's a that's an ongoing theme in our house um I think the the dream that I'm trying to fulfill at the moment is going away for six months and carving out the time to be really present and mindful with the kids and um I'm on the pathways I'm leaving in just a few short weeks and I cannot wait wow that's gonna be amazing what are you reading I'm reading two books at the moment. So I've always got a business book and a side book. I'm reading Paradise, and I actually can't remember the the author of that, but it's incredible. She wrote um, A Little Life. I don't know okay. if you know her. And also Scaling Up by Vern Harnish, which, you know, I always like to have one that kind of gives me a different framework from a business perspective and one that gives me a nice story to get engrossed yeah. in. Um, what are you listening to? What do you listen to podcasts? I'm sure you must if you've got your own. I listen to podcasts all the time, but I'm one of those horrible people that's super scattergun. 
I run across um, a whole heap. So at this stage, and I also, it's really bad, can never remember anyone's names. I'm listening to one called Online Marketing Made Easy um, and she's really cool. And I'm listening to another one by um, Business of Design I like in and off. Um, I just like, oh, it's kind of that thing. I like getting input from all different places. So probably by about four podcasts into something, I'm always going for something else. So if you've got a good podcast, send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what piece of advice would you give to your younger self? It'll all be okay. Yeah, that's pretty true. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. I know that you've um, got a lot on your plate to make all of these things happen. And I would love to, to perhaps chat to you another time. I, I think there's so much more we could talk about. And even just the fact that you've got seven children, how you manage that. I mean, I've got four, but seven just is next level. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> and best of luck. No, and we would, and, you know, thank you for having me on your podcast. And we'd love to have you on ours as well so we'll organize that yeah too. sounds good and um yeah i really appreciate your time all right take care thanks natalie all of the links and info for this episode are at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast don't forget to subscribe so that you can get a direct download of the latest episode and i really appreciate when you take a minute to rate and review as well as share the love with someone you know who might benefit from this episode or on social media if you'd like to access a range of free resources, come visit my website, nataliewalton.com. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast. And I would also like to acknowledge the people of the Bundjalung Nation where it was recorded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Imprint. <laughs>